The following program is for informational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new science, so do your homework before putting money on the line. Today is February 15th, 2014. Welcome to episode 84 of Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief at the LTB Network, and today the topic at hand is Ethereum. Bitcoin started something unstoppable, a new type of digital money that didn't have a company or individual responsible for it. With Bitcoin, this innovation begins with money, but many new protocols are vying to become the quote, Bitcoin 2.0, able to apply the same blameless, disruptive innovation to, well, everything. Late last month, LTV correspondent Jonathan Mohan sat down at the Ethereum house in Miami, Florida, with two of the project leads, Charles Hoskinson and Vitalik Buterin, for a wide-ranging exploration of the upcoming Ethereum project. It should be noted that Jonathan is currently or will become formally affiliated with the Ethereum project in the near future in a community management capacity, so make up your own decisions here. But wait, there's more. We wrap today's show with an update from this week's Inside Bitcoin's Berlin conference from Sebastian and Brian at the Epicenter Bitcoin Show. Stay tuned to hear their impressions of the European conference scene. Enjoy the show. So I'm here at the Ethereum house in the wee hours of the last day of the Bitcoin conference of Miami. And um, joining me is uh, Charles Hoskinson and Vitalik Buterin, two of the five core developers for the Ethereum project. So guys, thanks for uh, inviting me in, your hospitality, and talking today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's been a long day. So there's a pretty big presentation for Ethereum at the conference. Can you talk a little more about that? Well, yeah, it was a very large conference and incredibly exciting. Uh, I think it was over a thousand people who attended. Many uh, Easily. Yeah, many wonderful companies. It really surprised me to see how much the conference scene has grown from 2013 to 2014. And yeah, Vitalik had a, a really wonderful presentation. Vitalik, would you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So I had a 30-minute presentation. I basically talked about what what Ethereum is, uh, what some of the applications are, why we need it. And I think like the reception was really amazing. Like I saw in the presentation just before mine, you know, 40% of the seats were filled. During mine, it went up to 80%. After mine, it went back down to 50%. I well, think that was, means something. Oh, it, was, it was amazing. In fact, <laughs> he, he said any questions, every hand went up and he yeah. answered one. And then the moderator said, you have to go, you have to go. So he went outside and like everybody left the room. And they just mobbed him like a Van Halen yeah. concert. It, it, was it was like crazy. four or five people deep. It was pretty intense. It, it was. And I said, oh, God, I'm sorry, Vitalik. Where I have to come save you. I couldn't. I, I, I'm pretty tall, so I can see people, and I right. couldn't even see his head in the sea of people. Yeah, we got a picture of it actually. So, what was that like? Uh, I just sort of stared at the front at the first three people, and I just concentrated on whatever their questions were. And basically, it's like a video game. You know, you got a, you got a hundred monsters. You just you sort of slam one by one. <laughs> <laughs> so, what uh, what is Ethereum? You know, I- uh, Ethereum is really a project of frustration. What happened with? Mastercoin, ColorCoins, uh, BitShares, many of these other projects, is they all have this desire to build interesting things either on top of Bitcoin or apart from Bitcoin, like smart contracts, smart property, decentralized autonomous organizations, decentralized exchange, name coin stuff, identity management stuff, these, these kinds of things. So far, the results we've seen have yielded a lot of isolation, fragmentation, and a tremendously high cost of innovation. So quickly going through it, 
the projects are hard to discover. So it's very difficult to see who's working on what across the geography. Second, there's over 150 altcoins. There's a lot of fragmentation in the ecosystem, which is really unfortunate. And third, it costs millions of dollars to get even the most trivial things done. And so these are really the symptoms of a disease. And the disease is a lack of a foundation. And so Ethereum, in essence, is an attempt to build a featureless foundation for innovation. So everybody can build on top of it. So what we're doing is taking a Turing-complete scripting language, and we're taking a blockchain uh, and marrying them together in a very unique way with this mechanism called a contract. And then we're going to build a reference client that sits on top of it, which essentially becomes the android of the cryptocurrency space. It has a beautiful large application catalog, and everything is one-click installation. So you want a wallet, one-click installation. You want BitMessage, one-click installation. And we're going to open this up so everybody can use our APIs. They can use common programming practices to write their own applications for the catalog. And we're going to resolve those three problems because now we have a central, uh, well, I guess it's a decentral central app catalog that you know where all the innovation is. All the, excuse me, you know where all the, you resolve the isolation in a sense because you can see all the projects in a, in a single location. You can search and find them. Second, the apps now talk to each other through our compatibility layer. So you don't have to build BitMessage every time you need BitMessage functionality in your product. You can just simply talk to BitMessage through our foundation. And third, because we have a common application framework with these wonderful, really magical developer tools, uh, you're going to be able to develop things like MasterCoin in two months for $50,000, $60,000 on top of the platform. You know, it's not something that requires large-scale engineering because it's really, from the very beginning, a platform built for innovation instead of something where we kind of, after the fact, have to figure it out. So when Charles says a Turing-complete blockchain, Vitalik, what does he mean by that? Okay, so Turing completeness is there's, like, there's this idea that you can create a programming language, and once that programming language has at least a certain threshold of features, then it becomes as powerful as any other programming language that you can possibly conceive. Turing complete programming language can be used to, to perform any computation that can be mathematically defined. So the idea there is that this is a discovery made in computer science way back in the 1930s. Instead of having like spe specialized modules to perform specific tasks, you can have one Turing-complete programming language, and then you can have computational modules dedicated to executing that programming language. And on top of that programming language, you can build all your applications. Imagine if we didn't have that, then today we might end up with, with computers that had a, a hardware module for Solitaire, a hardware module for Internet Explorer, a hardware module for World of Warcraft. That's kind of silly, isn't it? And basically yeah. the notion is, if you can dream it, you can build it. Yeah. But, but why do we need Ethereum for this? Isn't this something that we could just put into Bitcoin or do it with another coin? No, it would require significant changes to the way the protocol works. And actually, to understand the reason why, it's useful to understand the history of Bitcoin and where, where the movement came from. So back in 2009-2008, Satoshi Nakamoto really wanted to test two things. And there was three things he could have tested, but he wanted to test two at the very least. He wanted to test this idea of a decentralized database. Basically, a ledger where you could put information into it, and you can't take it out. It's completely immutable. It's very secure, and it's totally transparent. This is the idea of the blockchain. Second, he wanted to test a transaction system. He says, well, you know, now that I have this database with all these things I can't take out, let me be able to move positions from one person to another person with no counterparty risks. There's no chargebacks. Uh, you don't need any third parties for this transaction system. These things combined together actually make a very nice currency. But there's this third thing you could test, and he was aware of it, which is a Turing-complete scripting system. The problem is when 
one wants to embrace Turing completeness, it comes along with a cost, which are usually security implications, implications about bloat, a whole bunch of things. And when you're running an experiment that's already really pushing the edge, you don't want to invite those kinds of risks. Now, fast forward, we're about five years in the future. Uh, we've seen amazing innovation in this space. We've seen a lot of players really working hard. And we've gotten to the point where everybody agrees turning completeness in some way is a good idea, whether you're open transactions, your Ripple, your MasterCoin. Everybody has their own ideas about how to do this. It seems to me the most logical place to use it is on a separate blockchain structure so that we can preserve and protect the value of Bitcoin while we conduct this new experiment. And when we're talking about the blockchain, there's actually a proof of work that you're using called Dagger. Yes, that's correct. Uh, and it has some interesting characteristics and properties. It is directed at cyclographs. Dagger was designed to be a memory hard proof. So it's intended to be ASIC resistant by simply recognizing the economics of ASICs. It says if you build an ASIC for it, 90% uh, of the ASIC would be computer memory, which is already highly optimized. So basically a CPU system, a laptop with memory or a desktop with memory, would be the ideal miner, not, not a graphics card. Unfortunately, Dagger does have some issues with its ASIC resistance. While it is cryptographically secure, it uses the same SHA capping mechanism that uh, Bitcoin uses. Actually, improve one because we're using SHA-3. Dagger does have a problem with shared memory. So it can't be used with the property of ASIC resistance in its current implementation. And that's actually okay for us because we went to the drawing board. We talked to a lot of people in the community from some good cryptographers to other people. And we came up with a pretty good plan. So moving forward into the future, uh, after we've cleared the fundraiser, what we're planning on doing is holding an academic contest where we're going into uh, inspired basically by AES. It's really useful to examine AES, and we're kind of taking a lot of inspiration from that. Basically, the federal government paid IBM and a few other contractors a boatload of money to develop DES in the 70s. And unfortunately, DES had some issues with its implementation. So learning from that experience and seeing the pains that it caused the industry, NIST and others really wanted to take their game up a notch. And so they created a large circle of academic partners. They worked very hard with them and created a competition where they invited the best and the brightest mathematicians and cryptographers in the world and computer scientists in the world to participate. So we had Ron Reves, Bruce Schneier competed, uh, many teams. And eventually Reindell went out and became AES. So we looked at that and we saw the value gained from competition and the, and the value gained from collaboration. And we said we could certainly fix Dagger, but it said it's a much better idea to take the notion of a proof-of-work, proof-of-stake hybrid and hold a competition with the same economic model that we have, the same linear inflation rate and all the parameters we desire, for example, either ASIC resistance or ASIC immunity, if that's possible, and get a wonderful team of judges selected from the uh, applied and theoretical space, both on the hardware and software side, and hold a large-scale competition with a fairly robust bounty to develop a replacement for Dagger. Why is it that it just can't be completely proof-of-stake? What, what is the desire of using proof-of-work at all? Well, okay, so there's this notion of equatability. So you're kind of trading demons when you go from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake. So when you're on a proof-of-work system, you're vulnerable to 51% attacks, and those attacks are enforced by he who owns the mining hardware. When you're in a proof-of-stake system, you're vulnerable to 51% attacks, and those are vulnerable to he who owns the currency. If you look at distributions of currencies like Bitcoin and, and other such coins, you'll tend to see that it's quite oligarchical in a sense. A small group of people tend to control a large scale of the currency. If you're comfortable with that, proof of stake is actually a fairly good system. 
if you're not comfortable with the lack of equitability in the ecosystem, then you probably need to embrace some sort of other hybrid. And there's numerous other problems with proofs of stake, like how do you distribute the money and, uh, and so forth. And I think Vitalik can elaborate further on this. Right. So the basic issue is, is that proof of work actually serves two functions. So the first function is securing the network, and the second function is providing an issuance mechanism. So the thing is, is that if you move to proof of stake, then you also lose the issuance mechanism. You have, you have the only way that you have of issuing new coins is to basically give them to existing stakeholders. And that's basically equivalence to having a currency that's highly deflationary. So for example, if you look at Peercoin, you know, Peercoin is a proof of stake coin that follows that model. There is actually a blog post that was looking at the, some wealth distribution metrics for all of the coins, and Peercoin is pretty much the most oligarchical of them all. Like, if we are going to be heavily reliant on proof of stake without a proof of work component, we will need to come up with some alternative mechanism of distributing the currency units in the long term. But I thought the thing that Ethereum did was it allowed miners to execute code on behalf of a user. Mm -hmm. So couldn't that be the mechanism by which they, you could distribute new currency issuance is essentially by the amount of code that you execute on behalf of the user yeah, rather so than just by mining like right. SHA-256 yeah. or so, SHA-3. Right, so theoretically that would be ideal. The problem is, is that how do you verify that the miner actually executed those computations as opposed to just pretending that he executed those computations and generating some random result? Right. The, po the point of a proof of work is that it's something that is beyond reproach. Once you've done it and broadcast it to the network, it it's verifiable. And it's done in a two-part way. You do a hard set of work to find an answer, and essentially like a lottery system. And once you've done it, it's easy to verify. So th there's no way of getting around that. You have to do the work. If we were to follow that kind of a model, uh, you would lose that property. Another thing about proof of stake that's interesting is that it is a good way of getting people who own currency to have a skin in the game for consensus mechanisms. And so that's a valuable property to explore and think about. But you have to be very careful about the equitability of your currency. You don't want to have a situation where you have a group of, say, five or ten people who own the bulk of your currency and therefore can uh, control the consensus. And with our model, we think that proof of stake has some pro uh, promise, but we don't think it's good for an issuance model. SHA-3 seems like a peculiar choice. I'm, I'm not a cryptographer, but it seems like the, the debate's always been between script and SHA-256. Why is it that you're mixing it up by going with a different algorithm? Oh, okay, there's a couple of reasons. Um, number one, SHA-3 has a wonderful cryptographic primitive, the sponge construction, which is eventually going to be used to construct block ciphers and new random number generators. So it's a beautiful construction just by itself. I think it's revolutionary as the Feistel circuit. Um, second, SHA-3 is going to eventually work its way into essential ASICs and CPUs, both on the ARM side, the Intel side, and the AMD side. They, there's this idea of specialized crypto cores. And we've already seen them with uh, AES, for example. So it's nice to say, hey, your CPU already has a built-in advantage that you know, your, shell, your cell phone has, your desktop has, and so forth. Also, it just seems to be cleaner in the way that we've designed things to embrace the newest standard, especially since this standard has been significantly vetted. NIST has gone through it, and many other agencies have gone through it. You were involved with Invictus Innovations. That's correct. And they, too, have a memory-hard algorithm. 
Yeah, and there are some issues. It's uh, called momentum, but they're they're moving away from that to a proof of stake system. So wh- why is it that we need to decentralize mining to CPUs? I don't understand. I thought the whole argument with ASICs was just let it happen because it's a transitionary phase, and then eventually everyone will have it, and then the effect of ASICs will just be gone. Well, there's a couple of reasons why ASICs cause problems in the ecosystem, and some of them are problems of taste, and the other ones are problems of regulation. So the problems of taste are if you're okay with only a small group of people having access to the hardware and only a small group of people ever being able to run large ASIC pools, you know, if you're okay with that, then that's not a problem. But if you're not okay with that, then that is a problem because that's the inevitable momentum right. of ASICs but, in but general. But CPUs, can't you just do that with botnets? Well, sure, you can do that with botnets, but everybody has a laptop, everybody has a desktop. You never have to buy anything. So everybody, if they wanted to build a large-scale mining pool, I can just go buy server blades. I don't have to wait for a pre-order from Butterfly Labs or wait for another uh, KNC miner to come. It takes time to get these devices, and the people who get first access to them are not everyday consumers. They're not well distributed. The people who get access to them are the people closest to the companies and the people closest to the pools. Okay, And so from that kind of a perspective, that's fine. It's a commodity business. But honestly, it seems to me if you want to have the freest and fairest distribution of hardware, you go with something that is the most distributed. In this case, the CPU. It is the most distributed platform. Second is a problem of regulation. So imagine if you had two lists, a blacklist and a whitelist. Okay, And imagine if the maintainer of the blacklist and the whitelist went to the ASIC manufacturers and said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and create a protocol where an ASIC miner won't process transactions that have touched things that are on a blacklist, so a tainted coin in essence. You couldn't possibly do this with Intel or AMD or ARM. They're not going to modify their architecture to placate the will of, uh, of an actor. But for ASIC manufacturers, they're quite small, they're very boutique hardware, their market capitalizations are, are not so robust. They can be compelled to do this if desired. Now, some will cooperate, some are not. The point is, because the hash power is now centralized to a small group of people, this could happen within a three to five year spread. And then you'd have a situation where you can have your Bitcoin, you just can't send them anywhere. They can't be sent through transactions. So that's an example of a blacklist attack that could be possible or engineered in a very creative way with, uh, with ASICs. So, right, but I mean, centralization with CPU mining always happens because they always move to GPU mining. They always move no, to- they can't. Technically, it's very difficult to move to a GPU space. One, because the processing cores themselves are slower. Second, because the, the memory space is smaller. So you know, GPUs don't have 32 gigabytes of RAM. I mean, a lot of desktops do. Earlier today, we had one of the founders of Litecoin who was here. Yeah. And, you know, Litecoin was created specifically to give CPU mining back to people who right. were overcrowded by GPU mining. And right. the thought was, it's unasickable. It's unasickable. Well, no, you, you don't say that. So there's the notion of ASIC resistance, and then it's a, basically a, a war game between algorithm designers and the intention of the original proof of work system. Uh, then there's ASIC immunity, where there's structural features that make it physically impossible to develop ASIC. You can pursue ASIC resistance, and the designers of Script did, and for a time it worked well, and now people have discovered ways of using Script on GPUs quite efficiently. And that's just the nature of the business. How is that not going to be the case with Ethereum? As I said, we're going to have a very robust competition to build a very good proof of work that's going to exhibit characteristics of ASIC resistance. Now, you're absolutely right. It perhaps could be the case that somebody develops a GPU algorithm and finds a way to enjoy mass concurrency. That's fine because GPUs are still well distributed. I can buy them on Newegg or now on, with Bitcoin on Tiger Direct. 
So that's a good thing for consumers. Uh, I don't have to wait for six months for my GPU pre-order. Also, GPU manufacturers are not going to change their architecture to placate generic attacks on the system. CryptoKit is the world's first Chrome browser Bitcoin wallet. It's the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet payment system. With a simple one-click install, it takes just seconds to get your wallet set up. And because CryptoKit finds the address and payment for you, there's no more fussing around or tab switching. CryptoKit is more than just a wallet. It comes with a preloaded PGP-encrypted social network, news feeds from Reddit and Google, and up-to-date charts from exchanges. Finally, CryptoKit directory allows you to make two-click payments with any of the BitPay merchants. Once you install CryptoKit, you won't need anything else. For more information or to download CryptoKit, visit CryptoKit.com. Would you like to buy Bitcoin? Cash into Coins provides the fastest, easiest, and safest way to buy Bitcoin in the United States. Simply place an order online, deposit cash at any supported bank, and relax. Cash into Coins will verify your deposit and send out your Bitcoin within 24 hours. Join tens of thousands of people who have purchased from Cash Into Coins. What are you waiting for? Buy your Bitcoin today. Go to cashintocoins.com. That's cashintocoins.com. What's a distributed autonomous organization or corporation? You know, I hear MasterCoin and BitShares talking about it. And how is that going to fit into Ethereum's Turing Complete Code? Okay, so the idea behind a distributed autonomous organization is that you have an, or an organization, it could be a company, it could be a nonprofit, it could be anything, made up of people, but the organization's structure, the organization's bylaws and its constitution, they're not enforced by a legal system, they're enforced directly on the blockchain. So the organization might have a rule that says, you know, we need 70% of, of our members in or consent in order to move the funds. And you could have that enforced as a contract in the blockchain. So the organization's funds would actually be owned by this sort of virtual account. And in order to make withdrawals from that virtual account, the blockchain would actually enforce the requirement that you need 70% of the members' consent. In general, the fact like decentralized autonomous organizations is something that people have been talking about using that term for a few months, but not using that term really for quite a few years now. But the problem that there's been so far is that in order to have a DAO, you need to have some kind of distributed consensus platform for it to live on. Bitcoin is a distributed consensus platform, but Bitcoin is far too limited for most of these kinds of computations. For example, scripts or, big, or Bitcoin's equivalent of contracts, they're binary. They can either be spent or unspent. You know, that's really not enough state in order to encode an organization. An organization is much, is much more complex than just spent and unspent. An organization has to maintain what its rules are, who the current members are. If it's a company, what the percentages of the current members are. Maybe it might even need to maintain its own, its own decentralized exchange for the shares. It might need to have accounts in other contracts and so forth. Ethereum and uh, I would say MasterCoin and BitShares as well, we're all see seeking to create consensus layers that are powerful enough in order for these kinds of decentralized organizations to actually be possible. I'd just like to add something real quick about um, the centralized autonomous organizations. I read, I think, the first paper ever written that used the term DAC. I proofread it uh, when I was at Invictus. Stan Larimer wrote it, and he did a really good job. Nobody really fully understands how to actually build a decentralized autonomous organization quite yet. Everybody keeps using the term. 
So what we as an organization are going to do is we're going to kind of try to resolve one of our issues in a very creative way. So when you're a global movement, it doesn't really make sense to base your global movement in a particular location. For example, why should Wikipedia be based in, let's say, the United States or Europe or Asia? You know, why should ICANN, which handles the domain names of the Internet, be based in the United States? It makes no sense. It's a global organization. What if you could uplift that organization and make it live in the cloud, make it live in the Internet and get the same level of trust and performance? So what we're going to do is working with CoinTalk is develop a uh, documentary over a 12 to 24 month period after we launch to take our central organization that manages the Ethereum project and gradually convert this step by step into a decentralized autonomous organization and basically become a how-to manual. And in a way to engage and evangelize our community, we're going to ask them to compel other organizations like Wikipedia and Wikileaks to embrace this model as well so that we can see an emergence of a, a new class of company. Furthermore, DAOs, where the killer application for them are, it's kind of hard for people in Western Europe, the United States, to understand this, but if you live in a developing country where the rule of law is not very strong, you usually have two options when you run a business. Option A, you bribe a lot of people, you get in good with the government, and they give you a government-sanctioned business. Option B, you run everything off the books. It's in the gray area. We see this in China. We see this in Cuba. We see this a lot in Latin America and South America and Africa. It's referred to as System D, and apparently it's a $12 trillion economy. Yeah, it's amazing. And actually, I've seen accountants actually have you know, columns on their spreadsheets that call them public servant fees, and they're just effectively bribes. But that's the only option you have. Those are the only two paradigms that you have. And it's really terrible because it's toxic to capital investment. It's toxic to actually proper entrepreneurship. But with this decentralized autonomous organization, once Ethereum has been produced, really the killer application, a few years in the future, once all these kinks are worked out, the real killer application is going to be the third option. So if you're in Cuba or you're in China, you're starting an organization, you're building an organization, now you can choose to embrace a DAO, put your accounting, put all your transparency, your management into the blockchain, and the rules are the same no matter where you're at in the world. And so investors can look at that and be assured, hey, the Chinese government can't shut this down. You know, the, the Cuban government can't shut this down. I can safely invest. I can get an ROI. I, and all the rules are predefined. The reputation is inside the blockchain. So we think this is really going to bring a tremendous amount of innovation to the developing world in the way that they structure and do business. When you say contracts and then you say organizations, what's the difference between a, a contract and a DAO? Or is it just a DAO, a series of contracts? Like, what is that? Yeah, so things are built in blocks. So Ethereum starts as a Turing-complete system. And it, the language has a syntax, right? And with that language, you can construct things. And we really embrace this notion of emergent complexity. So it's kind of like cellular autonomy, or in a simpler example, it would be just sand dunes, where very simple things aggregate to very complex structures. The reason why building a DAO is hard is nobody knows the particular configuration of small pieces quite yet to build up to it. So part of our experiment is to identify which contracts have to be layered together and just the right configuration to end up producing an effective DAO. A contract is like the building block, and then you layer the blocks together to eventually produce an actual functional organization. And these are quite modular. You know, so Wikipedia necessarily has to be a different entity than a political party, and it has to necessarily be a different entity than a club or a trade group, or necessarily a different political entity than a for-profit corporation. And that's the beautiful thing about having an abstract foundation. If you have a featureless system, it gives you the robustness to be able to engineer any configuration desired. 
But the beautiful part is once it's been built once, it's called the smart cow effect. It's what defeats DRM. Once you defeat a DRM system, one smart person has to do that. It's now globally accessible to everybody. If you ever ripped a DAVD, you probably weren't the person who figured out how to do that. It was somebody else. And the same deal with the decentralized autonomous organization. The reason why we're so committed to the user experience is we really want to build the reference contract and then give it to the world. And then it's a one-click organization and you just change the parameters. So Vitalik, the thing I don't get is even now, five years into, you know, the 140 year lifespan of just the issuance of Bitcoin, we're already having blockchain bloat issues. Like, how is it you can put code into the blockchain and that's not going to bloat the blockchain? How is it we can have thousands or tens of thousands of these distributed autonomous corporations running inside a blockchain? have it all be running on one blockchain, have not, there not be like massive lag or like, how does that even work? Right. Well, it's a bit of a misconception. A lot of people, when they hear about the idea, they, they think that just because it's computation, it means that it has to be hard. But the reality is, is that Ethereum is not your personal Amazon EC2 instance. The Ethereum cloud is not going to be able to do anything that, you, that your smartphone from 1999 cannot do. The, like, the thing is, is that, like, the fees are going to be simply prohibitively high. It's not the point of Ethereum to run heavy computations. The point of Ethereum is to run things like business logic, computations that try, that try and basically just enforce the rules of an organization. You know, is the number of votes greater than 70%? Is the transactions signer the, the correct entity? And so forth. And then there's also going to be some somewhat more complex computations to do various uh, uh, cryptographic validations. But that's pretty much the extent to, to which it goes. Ultimately, and in, in even code itself, like we're, we're using a, a bytecode, and most of the scripts that we're going to see running in contracts are going to be less than 100 bytes of code. It really is not that much more unmanageable than even Bitcoin. And, you know, even if it turns out that it does become too bloated, then there are ways of sort of compromising between using Ethereum and using a completely separate system. So, for example, you could have a completely separate a system that stores some data off-chain, but you use Ethereum to actually audit updates to the data. So, and then there are lots of like different compromises along the way. Like you can do the data off-chain computation on-chain, or you can do both of them off-chain and, ha- and have like mining on-chain and so forth. So, the thing is, is that even if you look at where Bitcoin is now, like people are already still thinking of uh, various little optimizations that you can make in order to make Bitcoin more scalable. And that's still five years after the protocol was released. So we, we do not need to have all of the solutions now. What matters is that we have the scripting language. And because of the concept of Turing completeness, the scripting language can be used to implement literally anything that can possibly be implemented. So if a solution exists, someone can just slap it on later. To add a little point to this notion of blockchain bloat, Vitalik is very correct in saying that we do things in a slightly different way that makes it better. But it's still a common problem for everybody in the ecosystem. I think it's a rather unfair criticism to say, oh, well, you didn't solve the problem and therefore you don't have a justification to exist. Bitcoin has yet to resolve this problem. They are nowhere near the transaction volume of Visa or MasterCard. They're nowhere near the transaction volume of stock exchanges. And yet they've grown to a dozen gigabytes in size. That is going to eventually become very prohibitive if this growth continues in the mobile space. You'll never be able to run a full client in the mobile space. You have to always embrace SPV. And eventually that's going to work its way completely into laptops and desktops where no one's ever going to want to run a full node. 
and that has problems in some ecosystems. So we as a project are committed to partnering with a lot of people in this space because this is a common problem. We're going to go to the Coinbase's and the BitPay's, we're going to go to the master coins and even the BitShares and the Bitcoin Core developers and work with some academic partners and say, listen, this is a common problem for everybody. Let's figure out a way to better optimize the use of the blockchain. That's the first point. The second point is recognizing where you don't need to do things on a blockchain. Vitalik was very right in this. They say it's a business logic layer in a sense. So if you want to do a peer-to-peer -peer exchange, for example, you could technically store all the transactions on a blockchain. That's one way of doing it. Or you could use something better, like, for example, Open Transactions, which is a wonderful ecosystem that Chris Odom has put together. And you can take a lot of the auditing logic where it says, well, yeah, you require trust, but it's distributed trust, so it ought to be good enough, and say, well, we can do you one better. Instead of having kind of good trust, we can go no trust. And you can run the trust layer on the, the Ethereum blockchain, and then you can run the entire peer-to-peer -peer exchange on OT layer. Well, that means there's no bloat produced or very limited bloat produced from the actual operation of the peer-to-peer -peer exchange. So as an example of where you get wonderful features that could even implement a potentially high-frequency trading, amongst many other things, and yet you don't have to pay the price for it. Uh, similar to uh, data storage, we keep saying, well, there's this five-line Dropbox we keep talking. Well, certainly you're not going to be storing the data on the blockchain. It'll be stored in other mechanisms with other ways. And then the final point is this idea of improving the trust model itself for thin clients. Maybe you don't necessarily need to have a full node, and maybe you don't necessarily need to have quite an SPV node. Maybe there's something that can live in between, which you can have a minified blockchain and some zero-knowledge proofs. And we're exploring those kinds of options, too, because we've seen some great, very innovative proposals over the last few years that we think are going to really allow us to have a bit of heterogeneity in the network, but still the same relative trust model that Bitcoin has today. When we talk about Ethereum and, you know, you let people's minds sort of sink into the idea of, a, of an agent running on the blockchain or code gone wild, the mind starts to think about all the crazy things that can happen to this. And you see yourself moving from programming to magic. So what I want to know is, like, what can Ethereum actually do and what are its limitations? It, it, it kind of seems pretty magical, and I just want to know, it is just a program. What can it do and what can't it do? What Ethereum can do, you know, we've got lots of examples in our white paper, in our, mater in our other materials. So you can do a domain registration, you can issue your own currency, you can do decentralized exchange, you can have an identity system, you can have a decentralized social network, uh, on-blockchain gambling, so decentralized Satoshi Dice, decentralized Dropbox, crop insurance, uh, financial derivatives, so all decentralized autonomous organizations, that's all stuff that we can do. Now I'll give you one example of, a, of an incredibly attractive feature that we can't do, which is a, a full 100% trust-free trust cryptocurrency that, whose value is as, sta as stable as the US dollar. In, some, in, in a lot of ways, that is the holy grail of cryptocurrency. If you can create a cryptocurrency that maintains a value that's at least, if not exactly, the US dollar, but, main, but maintains a value that fluctuates as little as fiat currencies do, that pretty much take, takes away one of the, what is probably the largest problem facing the Bitcoin economy today. We do come close, however, even though, even though we do not solve that particular problem. So what we have is we can use this concept of a, of a hedging contract where two people enter into a contract, they both put in $1,000 worth of Ether, and then after 30 days, you get $1,000 worth of Ether back. Now, if the blockchain could somehow discover by magic how much, how much Ether is $1,000 worth of Ether, then we've solved the problem. But we can't. 
So we do need to rely on either a, a centralized price feed or a voting pool of price feeds or some similar mechanism. So it's still much a lot less trust than than all the other previous systems involving issuers, but it's not perfect. Um, just other example, Ethereum cannot interact with the real world. An Ethereum blockchain cannot directly be made aware of any kinds of real world events. Once again, you need some kind of oracle to tell you what the real world events are. And then these are notions of like generic attacks. And so I, a friend of mine builds locks and he was contracted by a car company to build a new type of door lock. He said, well, no matter how secure you make the door locks on the car, there's always a way somebody can steal it. And I say, well, why? So you ever see a tow truck? So that's the problem. You can build a system incredibly secure within its own ecosystem. You can build a system incredibly robust within its own ecosystem. So Ethereum can do magical things. Bitcoin can actually do some very magical things. Cryptocurrencies in general can. But the moment you start tying Bitcoin or Ethereum to physical things like gold or oil, then you actually invite trust because that's a generic attack to the system. So we share that same limitation with all things. Same limitation with the DRM system. You know, you could build wonderful crypto, but the moment that somebody has access to a video, they can pull a camcorder out and record the movie they're watching on the screen, regardless of how good your encryption algorithms are. So this is the common feature. There are generic attacks that do exist. There are generic cases that we can never solve. And Vitalik's right. Anything in the physical world, cryptocurrencies cannot resolve. This is Chris Joseph bringing you news on Next, the first true second-generation cryptocurrency for February 14th, 2014. BC Next, the creator of Next, has revealed part two of his four-point plan for the cryptocurrency. Here are three key points. First, the mechanism for determining who will forge the next block will be completely deterministic. This will allow blocks to be generated at a fixed rate, which, by the way, can be adjusted. Second, mining rewards will be obsolete. The true rewards will come from services built on top of Next. Third, Next is intended to become a system that doesn't need trust, because everything will be transparent. When it's impossible to cheat, BC Next says, trust is irrelevant. For the complete essay, read BC Next's Plan for Next at wiki.nextcrypto.org. And stay tuned for more news on Next in the next Let's Talk Bitcoin broadcast. So Ethereum is doing sort of a master coin style raise is that fair to say yeah we're going to announce some more details about our fundraiser at a slightly later date that's that's kind of the notion it's going to be a coin swap and we'll discuss that at a slightly later date one of the main criticisms for the ethereum project is this notion of a pre-mine the founders pre-mine and the investors pre-mine why is it necessary to have people have a stake in the system why can't they just get it like everyone else in the way that invictus innovations went about having a fair and equitable place. And then once the, the starting gun went off, everyone had a, an equal chance at, at getting a piece of the pie. I think Evictus is actually one of the first great case studies of where this is not going to work anymore. So everybody would like to embrace the Satoshi Nakamoto model of, let's just launch the network and mine. And that works really well when you have a very small ecosystem because you'll end up getting a large amount of the currency, number one. Number two, the, really the cost of developing Bitcoin was quite small. It was equi sweat equity. A very small group of developers were working on uh, Bitcoin for most of its early history, so there was almost no development cost, if any. In the case of these large-scale projects, they require huge amounts of upfront capital. You have to do security audits. You, you, you have so many things that need to occur. And so 
you have to embrace this idea because they're going to have much stiffer mining competition as ProtoShares did. Um, I believe one third of the currency base got mined out in two weeks. That, that the idea of just mining only distribution is the best way of doing it. Second, Invictus started to embrace a MasterCoin style fundraiser. They had this notion of angel shares. Why? Because they didn't actually get any money from, or very little money from the release of ProtoShares. They weren't able to acquire it. And philosophically, let's take a step back and think what this proposal means. So not only do the developers have to put up all the costs up front, they receive absolutely nothing, but now they're competing with everybody else in the ecosystem, and they have to spend their own money and time to acquire some of the currency and their own money and time to try to make the currency valuable. That doesn't seem to be a very inviting entrepreneurial endeavor. Instead, rather, we would like to look at what's happened in venture capital, what's happened in Silicon Valley over the last 60 years. So if you look at the great success stories like the Googles and the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Microsofts and so forth, generally speaking, you start with a high amount of equity from the stakeholders who started the entity, the people who built it. Like, for example, Bill Gates had 64% of Microsoft when Microsoft was started. And what you want to see is a general deterioration of the founders' holdings, a general divestment of their influence. So Bill Gates holds, I think, 5 or 6% of Microsoft right now. Still quite a large amount of money. I think it's over $10 billion. It's pretty good to be Bill Gates. But he's no longer as powerful as he was when they flipped the switch. So that's the same thing we're trying to do here with Ethereum, is we really want to reimagine the notion of venture capital. We say, if you come up with a good idea, instead of having to go through the traditional seed round, the Series A, the Series B, or do some strange kabuki where you like launch the currency for mining and try to compete with all the other miners somehow, it's probably just a simply better idea to be as transparent as possible and say, this is my stake, this is your stake, these are the terms, do you want it on board, yes or no? and create a divestment schedule so that over time the currency supply becomes more equitable. I think pre-mines are terrible when the currency supply is fixed. For example, if you have Bitcoin, you have a maximum of 21 million coins. It's a really bad idea to say this person will own 5% or 10% of Bitcoin forever. That's a really bad idea to, to give somebody that kind of endowment. With Ethereum, we don't suffer from that problem. We have a linear persistent inflation model, which means the same amount of coins are produced per block. So over time, you see deterioration percentage-wise of the founder's holdings, but as the ecosystem grows and more uses occur, you see usually nonlinear growth in demand. So people's ROI is still very stable. They actually get a good return on their investment, just like everybody in Microsoft got a very good return on their investment. But you also accomplish the dual stake of equitability. You have much more equal distribution of your currency base. If you want to do things like proof of stake, that's incredibly important. If you want to do things like building DAOs with consensus mechanisms based upon the currency holders, that's also incredibly important. Because, well, if you have a deflationary model, if you have a fixed currency model, then a small oligarchy will always have control of the network. So we think this is the nicest balance that we were able to find inside the ecosystem. We say, here are the terms. We start with initially a fairly robust percentage. Over time, the percentage deteriorates thanks to the mechanics of inflation that we've developed. And we have every incentive aligned. It is open source. That's correct. So what's to stop me from just doing a hard fork from the Genesis blog? You could absolutely do that, and that's what we call firing the founders. And it's a great idea in theory, but in principle, it generally doesn't work. So I don't think a lot of Bitcoiners like the U.S. government. There's reasons why people enter the, uh, you know, a magic internet currency, right? Why haven't they hard forked Bitcoin to remove the U.S. government's holdings of Bitcoin? 
After the Dred Pirate Roberts seizure, the U.S. government controls a meaningful percentage. Of Sounds like a good idea. I can forever. get behind that. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of people would agree with that. They say, well, maybe we should divest the U.S. government. This is a good idea. Or maybe some people say, Satoshi's no longer productive. Why should he have 10% of the currency base forever? So people would have the notion to do this, yet they don't. Just like people would have the notion to use Bing if the features were better, yet they always seem to enter Google.com browser. These networks are not made valuable by the source code that imbues them. They're made valuable by the social consensus within the network. They're made valuable by the user base in the network, the infrastructure built around the network. And so miners are going to stay on the chain that has the highest value. That usually means they're going to stay on the chain that was launched first. Uh, investors are going to stay on the chain with the people who have the highest probability of adding value to the chain. And so if the founders are a bunch of idiots, they might hard fork and remove the founders and replace them with others to incentivize it. And that's actually a really great option to have. But more importantly, that's not a problem for the ecosystem. Because if you hard fork, all you've really done is fire the founders. It's only a problem for us. And that's great to give that option to the community. We have to kind of earn the right to keep that. I was... Looking at the market cap, you said linear persistent inflation. That's correct. And there's quite a number of zeros as it relates to the market cap of Ethereum. Does that mean there's going to be several trillion units? No, that's not true at all. That's not. That's complete FUD. Um, there are not going to be several trillion units of Ethereum for a very long time. Theoretically, one could reach this. So the amount of Ethereum produced is going to be proportional to the fundraiser. So currently, the fundraiser says one Bitcoin equals 1,000 Ether, and we're going to institute some form of hard cap, so there will be a maximal distribution of Ether. So if we raise, I don't know, 30,000 Bitcoins, then we'll produce some set of Ether. And then every year, we'll produce 0.4x of that. So we're not going to reach massive amounts, many, many trillions of Ether for quite some time, unless my math is completely off. Is it, is it Vitalik? I know your math is not completely off, Charles. Yeah, I didn't think so. And so, so, but some people seem to confuse the maximum amount of Ether that could be made in year 10,000 or the year 20,000 with the amount of Ether in distribution today. So let's go through some numbers real quick so we can kind of get an idea of the market capitalization because this is very important for people. So let's say we have a very successful uh, swap and Bitcoin is valued at around $800, $840, and we raise 30,000 Bitcoin. So with the pre-mine factored in with the, uh, with the IPO, the initial market capitalization at launch, meaning after the IPO has concluded, will be $37 million, give or take. And with linear persistent inflation for neutral ROI, we'd have to add about $12 million per year to the ecosystem in value. My shirt I'm wearing right now has five lines of code on the back of it, which completely replicates Namecoin, and Namecoin's worth that much. So I'm pretty certain we can reach a market cap that high within year one. In fact, I believe probably higher. So I think the ROI proposition for investors is, is quite nice. We were really careful about how we designed this so that we could see balance in our ecosystem. We really would like to see a lot of balance in our ecosystem. So we want to have every party, whether they be a speculator, they be a miner, they be an application developer on top of the Ethereum ecosystem to be able to get a positive ROI from their endeavor and be able to change things with the ecosystem. And we feel that this model is really the best of uh, all worlds. We could certainly be wrong. And the beautiful thing about the open source movement is that people can take whatever we've done as we've taken some inspiration for Bitcoin and those who have come in before it and change it and maybe soft fork or hard fork it. And that's really the beauty of the system, because in the end, the ultimate winner, regardless of what happens, is the consumer. Well, 
thank you so much. I know you're about to pass out after the handful of hours you've slept in the past couple of days. Uh, yeah, I think I've actually been up for about two days straight now. Vitalik, thanks so much. You know, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brian Fabian Crane. And I'm Sebastian Couture. And we're the co-hosts of Epicenter Bitcoin. We're a weekly uh, podcast on Bitcoin news and developments. Uh, we were just at the Inside Bitcoins conference in Berlin. It ended yesterday, so it's Friday now, and we've had two really vibrant days talking to tons of people, doing lots of interviews, and we're going to tell you about the conference and our experience there. Sebastian, do you want to start? Yeah, so I just want to say, first of all, that this is kind of an unusual setting for us because usually Brian and I are talking on Skype and you know, this is the first time we do a podcast segment sitting across from each other. That's right. Usually we're a few thousand kilometers away from each other and we saw each other for the first time in, in real life this week. So that was really exciting too. So what was your takeaway on the conference? It was a very vibrant atmosphere. I think people are very excited. You can feel that there's this belief that we're on the cusp of something really big. I think that was one of the sort of main main takeaways was this, this great atmosphere, this yeah. great sense of beginning of something important. Yeah, the, the impression that I got from speaking to all the people that we talked to there is that 2014 is the year Bitcoin blows up. This was my first Bitcoin conference, so uh, my main takeaway is that the Bitcoin scene is very, very vibrant, especially the German Bitcoin scene, in contrast to France, where not much is happening. I mean, it's just beginning. Anyway, here in Berlin, particularly in Germany, things are moving along quite nicely. Another thing I noticed is that there were quite a few Americans there. Investors, entrepreneurs, uh, people interested in Bitcoin for different reasons. And that tells me that Americans are realizing that there are things happening here in Bitcoin. So I think that's why there was such a high American attendance. Yeah, and it's a very international scene. And I think that's exciting. I think it's exciting in general about this Bitcoin community. It's a really global thing. I think that's great. One thing I want to briefly talk about that has been kind of surprising, and that is that there were only few traditional venture capitalists. So I've seen that in various contexts, you know, where people talked about that we are on the kind of cusp of a wave of Bitcoin startups and a wave of venture capital money flowing into Bitcoin. I think of traditional VCs, I was only aware of a Palmier from Hummingbird. But apart from that, you know, there was a lot of Bitcoin investors who bought some Bitcoins and now they're involved in the Bitcoin scene, but they're not kind of from the traditional startup background and now trying to build Bitcoin companies. Maybe that's coming and maybe that's more the case in the US, but here it wasn't where I expected it to be. I think it was Matt Rozak who said this, for the time being, there's only about $100 million in VC money going to Bitcoin startups, which is nothing. Yeah, <laughs> and that's... so that's going to grow exponentially over the next year and over the, next year, the years to come. Yeah, we certainly expect that. Yeah. Uh, that kind of brings me back to a different point, which I, I talked with Thomas Hessler, who's an angel investor here and the founder of a, a very successful company. And he, uh, he's been looking at uh, Bitcoin startups in Berlin. And uh, we were talking about this. And that is that there's, there's a very vibrant startup community here in Berlin. And there are a lot of uh, successful startup, you know, I think it's SoundCloud or a lot of uh, e-commerce companies. It's very active, a lot of meetups, a lot of conferences. But of those people, 
none were at the Bitcoin conference. So I think this talks to a, a problem we have here, which is a, a real separation between the Bitcoin community and the regular startup community. So I think to to really take the Bitcoin startups and the ecosystem to the next level, what's really important here is that we have more of an integration of just the people who have knowledge of building startups and the people who knowledge of Bitcoin. And what do you think needs to happen for that? People in the startup community, at least here, have not comprehended yet how important Bitcoin is and how massive this opportunity is if you're looking into building businesses. And I think that's that's the problem because, of course, if they did, at least from my perspective, I'm not exactly objective here in this context, but from my perspective, if you did grasp this, then of course you would come to this conference. Of course you would you know, start thinking about how can I use Bitcoin to do something amazing. And then that's not happening yet, not on a scale at least. So I think what's needed for this to happen is education. So we need to reach out to the startup community, uh, teach them about this. I'm, I'm giving a workshop in May at a, at a large startup conference here on, on Bitcoin. So things like that are needed, you know, where we go to where they are. Yeah, we need to evangelize. Them. Absolutely. And not, no, I mean, not only with startups, but just people in general, I think, yeah. True. But I think there's a really big need, especially to evangelize if people in the tech community and the startup community, because they are the ones who are going to build the apps, going to build the applications, we're going to build the amazing things that will get us to mass adoption. Just touching on mass adoption, the conversation I had with quite a few people is that we're on the cusp of you know, moving towards mass adoption, like that hockey stick curve is going to start going up very soon. And in order for that to happen, we need to get out of this kind of technical aspect of Bitcoin and get into user services. So the usability of Bitcoin needs to become much better and by usability we mean that just the regular person can you know create a secure easy to use accessible bitcoin wallet not have to worry about you know scanning a qr code or dealing with addresses or what have you this will make mass adoption occur so we really need to kind of work you know, fill that gap in between the technical aspects of bitcoin and you know, the usability of bitcoin i mean just look at sending an email today. I mean, most people that send emails have no idea what an SMTP server is. So we need to make Bitcoin become a seamless yeah. uh, service. And I think when, once that happens, and I had I also discussed about this with someone, and she asked me, like, where do you see this conference in five years? Or where do you see Bitcoin conferences in five years? And my response to that was, well, I don't know if we'll certainly have Bitcoin conferences, but you're going to see Bitcoin moving into home and garden conferences or whatever, because, you know, people from that community will create products and services around Bitcoin and cryptocurrency that can serve their needs, okay? So uh, I think that we're going to see Bitcoin move into other sectors as well and not just stay kind of this niche thing. And I think that's going to be a big trend. I think you're touching on something interesting if you talk about where conferences are going. And that's something I've been watching with amazement is this explosion of the conference scene. And I mean, we've seen this already. But it seems what's coming up is just of a whole different uh, magnitude. So, you know, we talk about exponential growth in a lot of contexts, but I think there are a few contexts where this is just so apparent and massive as in, in conferences. So I was talking with uh, five different people at this conference that are each uh, organizing a conference this year where they're expecting more than a thousand people. So that's, that's amazing. And that's outside of the media bistro conferences. That's exactly. you know, independent conferences or other organizations. Exactly. Yeah. And the media bistro people, they've uh, talked about putting on, I think, nine or ten 
Bitcoin conferences this year alone. So that's yeah, it's astonishing. And I think they they were mentioning at the next conference or at the conference they're doing in New York in a few months, they're expecting three to four thousand people. And then there was a massive a uh, big conference planned in uh, in Texas, in in Ireland, in Chicago, in in Bonn in Germany uh, so it's it's astonishing that's crazy so if you want to subscribe to our podcast you can find us on iTunes Stitcher or any other podcast aggregator you can also find us on Twitter we're at Epicenter BTC and we'll be doing uh, so a series of episodes uh, in addition to our regular Sunday episode over the next 15 days or so where we'll be releasing a lot of this content so we've got an episode lined up uh, where we interviewed a bunch of people at room 77 which most of you will know as the first uh, brick and mortar establishment to accept bitcoin and we also have dozens of interviews that we did on the conference floor just kind of informal interviews with people from the community and also we'll be releasing some of the most influential talks that we participated in yeah and uh, if you're interested in bitcoin news and developments you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. So we send out a weekly newsletter every Friday where we analyze the news, what's been going on. So you can sign up for that at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter. Thanks for listening to episode 84 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Ethereum House was produced by Jonathan Mohan, edited by Matthew Zipkin and Adam B. Levine. Berlin Update was provided courtesy of Epicenter Bitcoin with additional editing by Adam B. Levine. Music was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.